This is Battleground Ballot Box, a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. I'm Stephen Fowler, and today we explore the history of racist voting laws in Georgia and how the remnants of those decisions are still present today. We start back in the 1880s, not too long after the 15th Amendment gave black men the right to vote. slowly but quickly make our way towards Jim Crow laws. And those laws are preventing Black people, particularly in the former Confederate states, from taking full advantage of their liberties, and in particular, being able to access the polls. Dr. Adrian Jones is a political science professor at Morehouse College in Atlanta, and has studied the history of political involvement of Black people in America. So there are a number of ways that became popular that sort of um, spread across the the former Confederate states, like grandfather clauses, which meant you couldn't get to the polls if your grandfather couldn't vote. Your grandfather presumably was a slave. Um, Poll taxes, which even at just a dollar or two were extremely expensive for people during that period of time. Um, Literacy tests, where Black people were prevented from Uh, solid education or public education. And I say public both in terms of having the availability of public schools, but also allowing people to know that you as a Black person was educated was problematic. Um, And then, of course, violence. Jones said that in mostly rural Georgia, it would be hard for Black people to get to the polls without others in their community knowing. Lynching is at an all-time high, of course, from the late 1890s through much of um, the middle of the 1900s. Um, And so this situation really persists, especially in a state like Georgia, which forbid Black people from voting from its first constitution and in basically every constitution thereafter, except for the one rewritten with Black um, participation during Radical Reconstruction. Um, And so you've got a situation where people are unable to register to vote, they're unable to access the polls, so they're unable to participate in um, selecting their elected officials, and they're also prevented from being able to run for office themselves. The United States is actually the only country where they have granted the franchise to a group of people and then taken it back again, but that clearly happened here. For much of the early 1900s, this continues until the dawn of the civil rights movement. And so one of the very important things that's happening during the civil rights movement is that um, civil rights leadership and rank and file are attempting to create um, inroads into the ability to vote. And so In 1957, we see the first Civil Rights Act from the federal government in almost 100 years. Um, We see another in 1960, and of course, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And all three of those pieces of legislation were designed to open up the polls to Black people, but they weren't effective. But the Voting Rights Act was. And um, one hand, there's a time issue Right There's um, that march to Selma, which results in public televised uh, violence against Black people at a moment when um, the civil rights lobby has just managed to encourage President Johnson to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964. They're in the midst of trying to get him to pass this voting rights bill, which he's um, 
dragging his feet on until the Bloody Sunday events. One difference the Voting Rights Act offered from the Civil Rights Act is more teeth with enforcing non-discriminatory laws and practices. And under those initial laws, the only solution for voting rights violations was litigation. So litigation can be expensive. It takes a long time. Sometimes the election or this, the primary that you are complaining about is long over by the time you get a litigative response. So um, the federal government shifts the burden by applying uh, the Section 5 preclearance provision to states that have that fall under a couple of different categories. And what they their main similarity is that they have significant um, discriminatory rules with regard to voting. And um, so instead of having people have to go to court in order to protect their voting rights, they use this Section 5 provision, which requires the states to submit any changes that they would like to make to voting laws to the federal government Department of Justice to for evaluation of whether or not those laws are going to be discriminatory against Black voters. Section 5 applied to jurisdictions that had things like literacy tests and low voter registration numbers or turnout. So basically, states like Georgia had to get permission for proposals to make any changes. And then the federal government is able to object to the enactment of that law or give the state an opportunity to amend it, or the state has the opportunity to say, we're not going to pass this law. Alternatively, the federal government was able to evaluate the law. This would usually happen with, within 60 days. And then if they got preclearance, they would be able to enact a new law. Um, and what this did was put the onus on states, first of all, to only be proposing and attempting to pass laws that were not arguably going to discriminate against voters. Um, and number two, in my mind, and looking at the material over the years, like it really just promoted a moral compass, um, even for states that weren't covered by the Voting Rights Act Section 5 uh, preclearance provision. States would sort of act right, <laughs> and they would um, attempt to have some kind of cool with regard to the kinds of um, voting provisions that they would pass. And um, they were not making all out Jim Crow-esque kinds of um, prohibitions against voters that we've actually seen a resurgence of since the 2000s. With the signing of the Voting Rights Act, were things better off the bat? Absolutely not. Um, states, in fact, like Georgia and Mississippi, um, were extremely reticent at first to um, abide by the Section 5 requirements. Um, states also engaged in a lot of rules changing in order to avoid um, coming into contact with voting rights preclearance, like changing elections from local to at large, um, or just, you know, tinkering with things around the edges in order to um, prevent being regulated by the Voting Rights Act. In addition to, in the first couple of years, just refusing to make submissions Right, And it, it's not as if the Voting Rights Act has ever been enforced in a draconian kind of way. Um, the voting rights section of the Department of Justice does not act like a watchdog, right? So there are a lot of laws that have been passed since 19, enacted since 1965 
especially in that early period, that weren't reviewed by Section 5, by the Department of Justice. But it still meant that we started to shift towards a fairer system. And again, in terms of the time period, um, it, it just had this breaking point in terms of allowing people the opportunity to register. So a President Johnson, for example, um, because it's politically sensitive, actually doesn't try to enforce preclearance like in 1966. Um, preclearance doesn't actually really start until 1970. But the Johnson administration, um, folks whose feet are on the actual ground are able finally to register people to vote. So you have significant increases. I mean, just a sea change in the amount of black registration um, access to the polls, right? So suddenly you just have this flood of people who are able to actually vote. Then you sort of start to chip away at um, preventing states from passing laws that are gonna be just discriminatory. And even if they're passing some discriminatory laws, you've clamped down on it to a degree that has removed you from this Jim Crow period, essentially. Um, so you have a, a steep uptick in voter registration and by the 1990s, right, you have a steep up um, raise in the number of Black elected officials that you're seeing, both in the federal government and around the country, because people are now able to be engaged in the franchise. Jones says as more time passes under the Voting Rights Act, political realignment starts happening across the country, especially in the South. The hue of the United States is changing. And in the last 30 years or so, in part because of the Voting Rights Act, right? The Voting Rights Act actually um, intensifies this shift that you see of Southern white voters, for example, to the Republican Party and um, Blacks and other minorities being associated with the Democratic Party. And we know, of course, that, you know, that's fungible. During slavery and the Civil War, you know, who was imposing slavery and Jim Crow? Democrats. Um, but over time, um, the coalitions that that support parties has shifted. And um, so the current Republican Party is in some ways characterized by the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And this inevitable pushback against this piece of legislation, which started on the floor of Congress when it was being debated and which continued for the entire 40 years that the law was working at full capacity. The effort to roll back elements of the Voting Rights Act were at work since its inception, but Jones says that there's a more concerted effort now of using the courts to make changes, embarking on a slow process to shift the conversation in their favor through lawsuits, judicial appointments, and other methods. Starting with Nixon through the George W. Bush administration, Jones says there was a steady push against the Voting Rights Act in a, quote, politically correct kind of way through things like voter fraud inquiries and voter ID laws. That is compounded by the election of Barack Obama, uh, at which point you see an uptick in the success in states governed by Republican governors and who have majorities in state legislatures of them passing these voter IDs and similar laws. And so um, you're already having a very open and public, um, how would I say it? 
attempt to reject regulation under the Voting Rights Act and preclearance in particular uh, before the Shelby decision comes along. In 2006, because the preclearance provision regime is a temporary um, setup that has to be renewed and was renewed four times over the course of its uh, full working life um, prior to today, um, the act was renewed in 2006 by Congress. Um, proponents of the Voting Rights Act built an extremely strong record because they didn't actually change the formula that applies to preclearance, but they attempted with 15,000 pages of information to show that there were still things going on that the Voting Rights Act was dealing with in an effective way that was allowing people access to the polls and preventing um, laws that are similar to Jim Crow's laws like voter ID laws. Um, literally a week after the 2006 reauthorization is completed, W signs the law and the law get, got challenged um, in a case um, the Mudd case, which went all the way to the Supreme Court and in which um, Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, who wrote the decision, basically indicated that the Voting Rights Act probably had some significant issues. That was a signal for plaintiffs interested in challenging the law, ultimately like Shelby County versus Holder did. The landmark decision did not touch Section 5, which requires preclearance, but rather Section 4, which had the formula for what jurisdictions had to be under preclearance. Since that ruling in 2013, Georgia and other states no longer had to seek permission for things like voter ID laws, polling place closures and additions, voter list maintenance, exact match registration laws, early voting times and locations, or pretty much any other voting change. All of these kinds of exercises that would have had to have been considered by the Department of Justice and or would not have been suggested because it would have been clear that the Department of Justice would have dinged them um, fall by the wayside under Shelby versus Holder. On the one hand, you could make the argument that states and counties have more flexibility now to make changes that they say will help voters in a timely manner. But Jones says Black voters in particular don't have that luxury extended to them. It means that things are much more tenuous. Um, black people um, have definitely been impacted by the lack of supervision over voting laws post-Shelby. And part of that has to do with the importance of Black voters, particularly in the Democratic Party, as we are now under a Republican administration, which would like to maintain its uh, leadership in this presidential election in November. And um, a couple of the main reasons why Black communities are often unable to get to, the, to vote is because people don't have time off work um, in order to go to vote on a workday. Um, they don't necessarily have transportation. Um, and um, sometimes they don't have the kinds of identification that is required under some of these new stricter ID laws. I mean, you remember you used to be able to go to vote with a utility bill or, um, you know, something official that would prove that you were who you said you were, but um, nothing along the same limited lines as, our, um, as what's being required now in a state like Georgia. 
Then there's laws like exact match, which until recently held up voter registration applications that did not precisely line up with the state's driver's license database or federal social security database. In the June 9th primary, there were problems with long lines and new voting machines, especially in predominantly non-white metro Atlanta polling places. Jones said these barriers are present in communities across the country, especially ones that once required preclearance. If my polling place is closed, I don't have transportation. That's making things very difficult. Um, you can see across the many states right now, we're having um, in-court disputes about, you know, um, whether or not there needs to be a second signature on your ballot or, um, you know, discrete details about whether there are going to be ballot boxes available or early voting times. I mean, all of these things can be confusing for people in addition to making it more difficult for them to access the polls. But one thing she has noticed in recent years is a determination for Black Americans to vote in spite of those obstacles, especially here in the South. People's understanding that there is an attempt to prevent them from voting has in some instances encouraged people to be more dogged um, and more deliberate, right? So they're willing to wait longer in some instances because they are adamant that their voice be heard. The Democratic-controlled U.S. House passed the Voting Rights Advancement Act in 2019, later renamed the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act after the civil rights icon's death in 2020. The measure, which has made no traction in the Republican-controlled Senate, would reinstate oversight by the federal government based on updated data about voting problems. Meanwhile, the 2021 legislative session in Georgia is set to be ripe for discussion about voting changes after the disastrous June primary and the potentially problematic general election that could see control of the White House and the State House change hands. I'm Stephen Fowler. This is Battleground Ballot Box, a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. You can subscribe to our show at gpb.org battleground or anywhere you get podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Our editor is Wayne Drash. Our intern is Eva Rothenberg. The show is mixed by Jesse Neiswanger, and the director of podcasting is Sean Powers. Thanks for listening. 